The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know, but doesn't have time to tell you. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And this is Lindsay. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great. We're excited to try to be back more regularly now. Um, yes. As our lives are trying to normalize from everything that's gone on. Exactly. Exactly. It's been a crazy time and we've been we did actually record one episode but um it may be released at a later date so we've just been trying to get our our schedules aligned so we can start doing this again so it's good to be back right so um what are we talking about today so today we have kind of a an interesting topic one that probably most people haven't heard about um and it's generally geared toward the geriatric or older population, but I think it can generalize to everyone too. And so what we call this is the four M's. And the four M's stand for what, Lindsay? Uh, the first first M or one of the M's is medications. The, another M is mobility. The next is mentation. And the last, but I think probably the most important is matters most. So what matters most? Yeah. And so these are things that we have seen, um, they've looked at in studies, discussing these things with your clinician is important, especially as you get older. But really at any time, these things should be, at least some of them should be part of what you talk about at your doctor appointments. And so it's been more of a geriatric concept but um, I think it does generalize. And so even as a geriatrician, correct me if I'm wrong, Lindsay, but even as a geriatrician, you're still trying to educate other clinicians about what the value is of the four M's. And um, as a patient, it would be really good to know kind of what the value of talking about the four M's is as well so that you can maybe bring these up to your healthcare provider if they don't bring them up on their own. Right. And I think... Um you know, in geriatrics, we've had the forums, and it's how we've been taught to think about um, patients when we see them. But I think, um, as as healthcare systems, we've tried to go back to. I mean, a big term in healthcare system is patient centered care. We think about that a lot, and I think the forums really embody patient centered care. And really, what that is is. Um, a push for I think the medical field to we've come to use algorithms and push evaluating things to find an answer and sometimes we have forgotten I think recently to go back and look at the patient and uh, first I guess I think that's a good way of saying it, yeah. And so there's been a push um, to to revitalize the patient as the, the what matters most, the one person in front of you. And so, you know, I think the four M's help embody the patient-centered care. And so if you go to your physician and say, 
think about me in, in the four M's, um, I think that will help help them. And you'll, you might have to describe to them what the four M's are, but I think that would help them um, to treat you uh, as the, you're the person in front of them um, as, as what matters most. Absolutely. Instead of just focusing on the medical conditions in front of them, which is kind of what physicians are trained to do is to look at the medical conditions to diagnose, evaluate, treat, diagnose, evaluate, treat, and so on. Um, They're looking at you as a whole and um, trying to address your health, A, based on what's important to you, and then B, kind of based on these other things that really affect day-to-day life. Right. And I think we've kind of... um had episodes about each of these topics separately um, that you could go back and listen to maybe in more depth, but we're kind of looking at it from a different point of view maybe today um, a little bit. So I encourage you to go back to our other episodes and look look up our um, recent ones on these, these very topics. Absolutely. So when we talk about what matters most, which we'll jump into, we'll spend just a few minutes on each of these here. But when we talk about what matters most, that would relate back to our advanced care directive um, episode, the medication one we did with um, with our pharmacist, and so talked about evaluating medications and interactions and deprescribing, and so check back on that one. Uh, mentation, we did the one on dementia, which I think is really, really impactful. Right. Um, and mobility, maybe we haven't spent as much time on either. So we can take a few minutes. But again, looking at these these four things kind of as a whole, as part of your treatment or as part of your um, evaluation can really help um, your clinician, you know, view you as a whole person. Not only that, we know that in studies, when patients and physicians have these conversations about these things, patients actually do better. Is that right, Lindsay? Right. So definitely um, fewer hospitalizations uh, are noted. If you are hospitalized, there's shorter hospital times uh, when we think about these things when taking care of people. So I think it decreases need for care overall. Definitely important things to address. And again, if if your clinician isn't familiar with it or doesn't seem to be, then it's something just to bring up and say, you know, these are things that I want to spend a little time talking about. Um, And sometimes that means setting your other conditions aside for that visit so that you can spend the time on these. Is there, Lindsay, when when you're talking about the forums with your patients, Lindsay, is that something you try to do, you know, address all four of them at every visit or do you do it on a yearly basis or how do you handle that? Because obviously it might be a lengthy discussion to do this all in one visit and talk about other conditions? I kind of touch on them all in every visit, but there's certainly, I think, more that you can do. Uh, I mean, right now our push is on um, evaluating mobility in our clinic. And so we're trying to prevent falls by catching people who are maybe more likely to fall because of a gate speed. So we're checking gate speed just once a year in people over the age of 65, just as a way to screen people for the possibility of having balance and fall risk. Perfect. Yeah. As that screening, just to kind of explain to people what you do then. So when you say gate speed, you're basically saying how fast they're walking just on a normal basis. Is that right? Yep. So we ask them to walk. Uh, it's a 10 meter walk that we is timed and we ask them just to walk at their normal speed that they'd be going, um, you know, walking down the street, so not an exercise speed, but, um, and 
there's been studies that show if you're slower than one meter per second that you're probably at increased risk for falling you know the slower you are the more risk you are for hospitalization for needing care with um, daily activities and so that's one thing we're doing to assess mobility in an effort to decrease falling and having to deal with the the falls and the aftermath of that there's lots of other ways to assess fall risk as well and mobility and you know there's timed get up and goes there's a berg balance scale that physical therapists do Um, oftentimes i just watch people get up out of a chair and can you get up without pushing with your arms can you stand up with your hands in the air and i think that's a good measure too so there's lots of ways to to measure this um, but it's something that is important for future health Exactly. Yeah. And so when you find an issue or a a concern or possible concern, what's the next step then for patients? What I'm doing, which is based on some some studies that have been done, um, depending on on what your gait speed is. So if you're less than one meter per second, the first thing I would do if you're just slightly less would be to give you an exercise program. So generally, I'm handing out actually what the National Institute of Health on Aging has, several booklets on exercises at home that you can do for strength and balance. And I'm just encouraging you to to do these most days of the week. Is that something that we can um, reference? Is it do they have a web page or anything that we can link to on our on our show notes? We'll definitely put the link in there. They have great information. Perfect. Yeah. If you're a little bit um, slower than that, then I would recommend formal physical therapy for strength uh, and balance. And then uh, if you're already falling and kind of have done some physical therapy but are still having trouble, then I recommend um, multidisciplinary balance and stability clinics to do a full evaluation. Perfect, yeah. So that just gives people kind of a general idea of what we're looking for and what the next steps would be if if we do see a problem or a concern. Do you ever um, include driving in the mobility assessment as part of that or where do you put driving in this? Because I think that's often some, you know, an important thing that comes up as we age too. If you're having multiple falls, then that actually has been shown to be an indicator that probably have some driving safety issues and so it should be a trigger for us to think about that it definitely means that they're often you know if we can't find a good reason for falls that's mechanical or muscular um, or medication wise then often it's just a slowed processing speed that happens as we get older and and that can is one of the biggest things that make us unsafe for driving so it certainly should trigger thoughts about driving safety yeah so all of those things are just part of the mobility of the four m's And um, again, that should be evaluated at least once a year, but we're probably observing it more than that. I tend to try to watch, at least watch my patients, you know, get up out of their chair every time I see them and see how they're doing with that. Right. I think an interesting thing that we're seeing through the COVID is how much when we limit our, I guess, footprint on our community. So we've all been isolating quite a bit. Um, but the more we do that, I, and we've seen patients back three months and four months and six months, um, from really isolating, we've seen how much people have really 
declined in their physical stamina and strength. Yeah, absolutely. So I think just your everyday movement is so important, whether it's exercise or whether it was that you were, you know, going to the store and walking. I mean, it's just that that movement that we had in everyday life is so key to keeping um, healthy. Yeah, and certainly not not so hard to maintain even during isolation during summer months, but during the winter, it potentially will be harder to, you know, be use precautions, but also stay mobile and stay active. Right. So I think there's lots of ways YouTubing exercise, you can get onto a bunch of um, videos that way to find things to do in your home or Zoom classes or um, just doing the exercise from the pamphlets that you find on the the website that will link will help. Well, since you listed medication first, why don't we jump to that? And again, we do have another great episode, I think, great, on medications, but we'll spend a few minutes here just talking about what are you assessing when you um, have these conversations about medications. I think one of the first things is there's um, a beers list of medications out there. Beers as B-E-E-R-S, a patient person's name, the beers list of what's considered inappropriate medications for older adults. So as a geriatrician, that's kind of where I focus. But but certainly the, the reason they're inappropriate for older adults is because of anticholinergic properties and side effects that cause drowsiness and cognitive issues. So anticholinergic is a big word. Right. What does that mean? Medications that have anticholinergic properties are ones that uh, we use for um, their antihistamines, so over-the-counter medications for allergies like um, Benadryl uh, is generally a, a one that comes up on my list of meds that people take and think are safe but can be a problem. So that's a big one. Other group of medications um, that we look for are benzodiazepines, so things that we use for anxiety or sometimes um, sleep problems or different things. And so uh, that, so certainly narcotics, um, lots of seizure medications that we use in lots of different ways. So there's lots of lots of different medications on the list and and the idea is that they have side effects that can be more dangerous the older we get just because of how we uh, metabolize medicines and um, because of reserve yeah, and strength yep. and coordination and things like that. So often I look for those as the first thing. Um, but certainly there are reasons to be on some of those medications and, and we just have to evaluate whether benefits outweigh risk or are you or just at least assess, are you having any of these side effects? I think the biggest thing is making sure when to look for kind of prescribing cascades, I call them. So often I'm looking at for this when I see a patient after they've been in the hospital. So often I'm going to pick one, an example, let's see. So oftentimes I see it with the the blood pressure medication amlodipine. So somebody's put on the blood pressure medication amlodipine and that often causes swelling in our legs. And so instead of thinking back, oh, that amlodipine probably caused it, let's switch the blood pressure medication. Often we get put on um, a diuretic like Lasix to help with the swelling in the legs. And then that will cause some worsening incontinence sometimes and so then we can get put on you know one of the overactive bladder medications um 
that can cause then constipation and blurred vision. So, right, so it's caused one medication caused a lot of prescriptions that then can cause more problems. So, right, the other prescriptions are then to treat the side effects of the initial medications. Right. And so, I think that's something we get into a lot, especially if we're seeing a lot of different people for our care, special specialists for our care um, and then going to somebody else and so we just keep adding on instead of looking back and maybe reassessing the the use of that first one and switching it out for something more appropriate. Absolutely and kind of as an aside here I do see that a lot as patients are hospitalized and then you know referred to a specialist maybe after their hospital stay without a follow-up with their primary and that specialist addresses their thing and then sends them to another specialist and again they don't get back to their primary doctor and by the time they do the prescribing cascade that you described has already occurred and you know if they if if patients do get in with us usually we can take a look at things and um, slow down that prescribing a little bit and hopefully reevaluate before continuing to add medications. Right, I agree. Um, and, you know, medications are probably the number one reason for falling and for ER visits in, in a huge population of patients, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's the anticholinergics, which work on nerves in a certain way. There are, like you mentioned, the blood pressure medications, which can make people dizzy and lightheaded. Um, and cause other side effects that we then treat, which lead to more side effects. So lots of, lots of potential for um, feeling better if we look at the medications carefully. And then just polypharmacy in general. So more than six medications in an individual is considered to be polypharmacy. And there's certainly been lots of studies that show that the more medications you're on, the more likely you are to have um, side effects and drug interactions and negative outcomes um, because of those medicines. So I think deprescribing medications is a is a there's a big push going on right now too to really take a look and make sure we're getting rid of the ones that we should be getting rid of and not staying on things when it's not no longer appropriate there's a good uh, website that we'll we'll put a link to called deprescribing.org that has good uh, patient information and pamphlets for for people to kind of evaluate your own medication list as well perfect yeah and that kind of brings back brings back the circle which i think we talked about in the medication episode too about just having these conversations about what matters when you're looking at medications because depending on your goals a medication may make sense for you to be on versus somebody with a different goal that medication might not be adding a lot of value and so having a conversation about what matters can help drive what happens with medications too. Correct and I don't know about you, but I probably see that a lot with uh, kind of our statin medications is a big one that comes up. Absolutely. And I think we might have talked about that in that issue as well. Yeah. Another point, I think often people get um, put on proton pump inhibitors like omiprazole or Prevacid is the other name. Um, medications for heartburn. Right. All these medications for heartburn. And sometimes we're put on them just because you were hospitalized and we put the we put people on that for a prophylaxis reason and then it never gets discontinued and people end up on it for years and years for no reason really and so I think that ends up being a big one as well absolutely yeah that we kind of miss and and can have you know side effects because of as well right right 
talk about what you how that conversation comes about when you're talking with a patient about what matters most to them. Um, and again, is this a yearly thing that you do or a regular thing? Certainly changing changes in their health can lead to those conversations again, but how do you start that conversation? I think it's it's certainly a difficult one because nobody wants to think about their mortality or death, but I try to start it, you know, when I first meet somebody more general, what, you know, what matters most to you? What makes life worth living would be a first first question that I ask people when I'm first getting to know them. And often, like most of us would answer, we hear, you know, family or being able to communicate and be with my family is a big one that I hear and often then we have to dig deeper because that's not really getting at I mean that's great that that that's what matters most to you but we have to dig a little bit deeper than that if we're really trying to do kind of patient-centered care that matter what matters most to you right so exactly that may be how I approach it at at the start um then depending on you know where they are in kind of their health their health and um, kind of medical conditions, I would dig dig deeper often. Um, so another question I like to ask is, is what could you live without and still feel that you have good quality of life? Sure. And so that's, you know, one to think about, um, you know, could you live without being able to walk and feel like you had good quality of life? Could you... Um, live without being able to speak, but having to write things, you know, just kind of trying to generate discussion on what, what do you think you could live without and still feel that you had very good quality of life? So it's trying to get to think about quality over quantity, right? Because we could keep people alive for a very long time uh, with medicine today, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a good quality of life. Exactly. And so this conversation is really about how do you get quality of life? What does that mean? And what does that look like? And you've kind of described um, on that previous episode about medications, you know, different scenarios with patients where one really wanted to live to a certain date to see a grandchild. um, And another really wanted the best quality to feel as good as they possibly could, which meant reducing medications for the second one. And possibly giving more medications for the one who is really going for that quantity of life. Right. And so so really understanding that can mean a huge difference in how we care for you. So if you're a patient who, you know, you you know kind of what your goals are, what your wishes are, do you have any recommendations, Lindsay, for how a patient can bring this up to their clinician if the clinician hasn't brought it up or is bringing it up? I think... You know, one way would could be, you know, saying, you know, I brought my advanced care directive or I filled out my post form. Um, here it is. Um, can I talk to you about a few things that matter most to me? Yeah, I think and bringing those forms is very helpful to open that conversation too. Yeah. Yeah. And otherwise, maybe just saying, you know, as part of our visit today, I'd really like to take a little time to talk about what's important to me and how I want to be, tr- you know, cared for from a health perspective. And I think most clinicians will be open to that. Right. They might be shocked that you brought it up. <laughs> They'll be very happy if you bring it up and right. have that conversation. It's it's such a important, meaningful conversation and really does have an impact on how you are treated from a medical perspective. And certainly as you go through different stages of life, um, you're, these 
change, right? And so you always have to be kind of updating and changing with what with what's happening in your stage of life. Yeah, and we can again list some resources that we've um, put on our website in the past too about advanced care planning and things like that. So um, I would definitely refer you to those and to that past episode if you do have more questions about that. Right. Anything else you want to add, Lindsay, about what matters most? That cover, and yeah, if you have more questions, um, certainly feel free to write in to us, or or if they aren't answered in our in that past episode, um, we certainly are willing to to dig deeper in a different way if if you have different questions. Absolutely, yeah. And then I think the last M that we haven't really touched on in depth yet today is mentation. And so what does that mean to you, Lindsay? How are you evaluating that in your geriatric clinic? So I think it both means how is your memory and cognition as well as your mood. So are we having any symptoms of depression, anxiety, um, and any problems with memory and thinking? And often, you know, I think we probably should do um, some memory screening annually as we get older. And the way that it's set up as currently is I don't typically do anything until either you've brought up a concern as a patient or I've noticed something that makes me concerned. And I don't know if that's the, if we're missing probably something then. Um, Studies have shown though it's probably doing screening regularly maybe isn't beneficial as well. So I think where it's often done is in the Medicare annual wellness exams, which is, is a nice thing to have done. Um, it has yeah. its pluses and minuses, I guess. <laughs> yep, it does. <laughs> and that's a whole other thing well, to get We might have to in, talk but, about that another day. Yep. Right. Yep. But um, I think if you have any concerns about any of those things, you should definitely bring them up to your um physician, primary care provider, and um, and request screening or evaluation. Yeah, and if you're a concerned family member, you can do the same thing by calling the clinic or, um, you know, sending a message to the person, to your family member's clinician, um, but just letting somebody know that you do have concerns. Right, and I think... Um, with any of those, with because often people who are depressed don't recognize their symptoms as depression if they're having much more uh, physical symptoms. So sometimes it takes an outsider to say, I think these symptom, physical symptoms you're having are symptoms of a depression. Yep, and all of those things kind of need to be evaluated together because, of course, severe depression or anxiety can affect cognition and memory too if someone is so um, down or so so anxious about something, they're not able to focus their attention, then they might look like somebody who's having memory loss because of that. And so really they go hand in hand in terms of when we're assessing, we should be looking at all of those things. Definitely. And so, you know, in our clinics, I think we are doing mood screenings on a regular basis, but I would say that sometimes the screenings are more geared toward the symptoms that younger patients have than what we might see in our older population. Right, I agree. And so again, yeah, if you like you said, Lindsay, if, if someone does have a concern, it's certainly um, helpful to, to have that pointed out because um, otherwise we may not be, be thinking along those lines. And we, we obviously, because of um, HIPAA, can't give out information, but we can always receive information. Exactly. Yeah, and so... 
when you do kind of like the kind of like mobility, Lindsay, when you're doing the mentation, a cognitive screen or mood screen, if a concern arises, then what are your next steps with that? So I think with um, if it's memory cognition concerns, then you have to go through and look at all the medications and and evaluate for the moods. And there's some um, screening tools that we can use, whether it's um, a mocha or a slums or there's various uh, in the clinic quick, you know, 10 question um, screenings that can help determine. I think a big part of it is talking with people who are around them and and giving scenarios or um, specific examples of what you notice they're having problems with with memory and cognition. So is it they they used to be really organized and now they're not, or they used to be able to pull a big meal together for twenty people and now they're messing it up, or they're misplacing items and never finding them again. And I found this in the fridge, whatever it may be. If you have examples of those, it's very nice to to hear those because that can help us determine um, different ways to go. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, with if we have concerns for dementia, um, just to kind of briefly touch on this, dementia, sometimes we send people for further testing, which is pretty in-depth testing. But that doesn't have to occur to make that diagnosis. Correct. And so do you, do you when you're making that decision to refer people for more testing, is that based on kind of your clinical assessment alone or based on also what their wishes are, what families' wishes are? How do you make that decision? Right. I, I think all of those things. I, um, I think I have quite a bit of experience with with dementia, so I feel pretty confident in in my ability to listen to the patient and the family and do the screenings and come up with a diagnosis. There's sometimes that I would um, refer on to neuropsych testing would be more if the patient themselves is doubting um, what I'm telling them or family. Um, is giving pushback that they they don't feel that is true, then I'd certainly get the neuropsych testing or if there's some legal issues um, or if there's some more unusual symptoms or side of memory and thinking that I'm trying to decipher between. And often the neuropsych testing helps decipher between whether it's a depression, anxiety that's contributing a lot, or sometimes there's the more uh, rare dementias that I'm trying to evaluate, then I'd send them on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the the testing can be helpful, but again, isn't necessary. And um, I see a wide variation in patient and family preference in terms of how much testing they want to go through versus just, you know, treat it as it is and as symptoms arise and kind of go that route. And so I don't know that there's generally a right or wrong answer, but it does depend on the clinical situation um, and family and patient preference. Definitely. Good. Well, anything else to add on mentation? I refer back to the conversation (laughs) we had with Deb Call because I really think that was a good um, informative episode on, on memory and thinking and dementias. But again, if you have questions, we can certainly uh, do some more when have different people on as well. Yeah, so this is just a, a overview of what the four M's are that geriatricians and hopefully other clinicians also try to focus on and 
um, discuss at, at least some of the visits periodically. Um, and it was something that you as a patient or a family member can also bring up to your clinician just as um, important things to help with reducing falls, reducing hospitalizations, reducing time in the hospital, and helping provide a better general picture of what what you or your family member wants in terms of their care. Right. I think the, you know, the geriatrician started with the forums and the the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has taken on a big project um, for defining and evaluating healthcare systems uh, to be determined as age-friendly healthcare systems. And um, I think that goes to show how important these four M's are. And um, I think it would be an advocate for yourself and, and talk to your, your primary care physician about these things. Absolutely. So, Lindsay, do we have a health pearl for today? I think we do. It's that time of year again, getting towards the end of September, beginning of October. So that means flu season. And so we certainly recommend a 100% to go out there and get your influenza vaccine. Absolutely. I think it's more important this year than ever. I mean, it's always important, but um, with the COVID pandemic happening right now, um, we don't want to be dealing with influenza and COVID together, so we strongly recommend that everyone get a flu shot. And I'm getting a lot of questions. What do you think about the timing? Is it too early? People are asking me, is it going to run out by the end of the flu season? I hear that too, yeah, and I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, those antibodies don't usually, they don't last long, long, but they don't just fall off abruptly either. And so, um, you know, if you get the shot, let's say, the end of September, it takes two weeks for your antibodies to be fully developed. And so that puts you into the middle of October. And really, that's when we do start to see influenza circulating. And again, if we get enough people to have the flu vaccine this year, hopefully we can really reduce the flu season that we see. Masks might also help with that. Right. Um, and I know uh, our healthcare system and hospital are certainly to capacity at, at this moment, not not just with COVID, but with everything. And so um, we need to stay as healthy as we can. Exactly. Yep. So get your flu shot, spend time outside like we always say, <laughs> and yeah, have a conversation about the four M's. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll try to be more regular in our podcast again so you can tune in and look for us. Absolutely. You can find all the links in our show notes for this episode at www.everythingdoc.com. Please look for us on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love your feedback, questions, and suggestions. You can always email us at mail at everythingdoc.com. And um, if you are enjoying this and find it to be helpful, sharing it with friends and family um, helps us too. And you can always follow us on Twitter or Facebook as well. All right. Thanks so much and have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.